0: Lewis. <clears throat> Good morning. Um, this is a, a, an unusual day for us, and I see a lot of friends and everybody out there. Our law firm um, once a year has a Christmas party, and it's uh, today, it's this afternoon, and it's the kind of thing where if Becky and I had our druthers, we'd have all of our church invited to it. but we, we can't pull that off. And so some of you have come up to me and said, well, I am not get invited to the party you're having today. <laughs> and all I can say is, is I'm real sorry that, that, that somewhere between the IRS and, and, and space limitations and the, those people that have to be invited, there's very limited what we can do outside of this, but this is for, for class. But that's why we also try and have our class party uh, out there at the property uh, uh, at least once or twice a year. And so um, sorry especially to you th- three people who came up to me grumbling, <laughs> although I think they left. <laughs> um, okay, a couple of housekeeping matters, and then we'll move forward. Uh, uh, Nathan, by the way, bless his heart, he, he, uh, he calls me. He's doing this story that, that may or may not get done. I don't know. I hope it's a nice story. And uh, he emails me and says, uh, so any chance I could, like, come to, to your class you teach on Sunday morning? And I emailed him back. I said, "Sure." And then he emailed me back. Said, "Great. What time?" I said, oh, "I'll just I'll pick you up on the way there because he's staying real close to the, the church." And so we're driving in, and I said, "So, when was the last time you were at church?" He said, well, "I'm not really sure. I've ever really been." <laughs> So he's in for a shock, but I told him, I said, hey, this is, this is who we are, okay? You can uh, uh, understand uh, that we are this way and that's all there is to it. Let's start then with that uh, background information. We are in Isaiah and uh, you, those of you who were here last week, come on, may remember that uh, we've, we've kind of bumped Isaiah around. And we've got some visitors this week, not just Nathan, but some others. Let's make sure we're all on track with where we are in this class. I am concerned that as a congregation or a group of people who profess to be Bible-believing people, that there are many of us who don't have basic core knowledge that we should about Scripture. And so what we've endeavored to do in this class is to say, how can we become a biblically literate people? How can we take the Bible and, and... learn the core questions and answers we need to know to where we feel comfortable with this book where this book is not something that belongs on the coffee table or on the bookshelf or in the pastor's office Uh, but this book is something that we're comfortable knowing where it came from we're comfortable knowing why we think that it's God's Word. We're comfortable knowing what the stories are in the Bible and what the things are that are taught and the the core ideas. And so we've started and we've made it up through Isaiah in in the Old Testament, in the Jewish scriptures. And um, Isaiah, we kind of hopscotched because we had uh, uh, Joel Chernoff uh, come in from a Messianic uh, synagogue out of Philadelphia last week, and he could sing some songs out of later Isaiah. So we skipped earlier Isaiah and put it out of order. Um, Joel, it looks like we'll be back maybe in January and also in February to sing some for us out of the Minor Prophets. But uh, in the meanwhile, we're going back to earlier Isaiah today. And this is our last class of this year. We'll start again in January. Um, I think I'm going to throw one more Isaiah lesson in in January. And then we'll commence with Jeremiah and move on through the rest of the prophets. Um, That's for 2004. Now... Isaiah, new subject, this is what class is about. I am convinced deep in the soul of my being that I, that I have something to say if I can even remotely come close to having the wherewithal to get it out right, that can absolutely change Every person in this room. I don't care where you are in your life. What we have today is something that can absolutely change who you are and change it for the better. Ask yourself right now, am I satisfied with who I am? Am I satisfied with my place in life? We've got young people in here. You've got the world in front of you. You've got your life in front of you. Don't ever be satisfied with where you are yet. We've got folks who have lived this life for a long time in this class, relatively. The older I get, the quicker it seems to go. And I urge you just as well, don't be happy with where you are. Please help me in today's class to give you the message. See, what we're talking about today is we're going to look at Isaiah 6, 7, 8, 9, right in that range, and we're going to look at the call of Isaiah as a prophet. Isaiah lived in Israel, seven hundreds BC, and Isaiah lived at a time where Judah, the southern two tribes of Israel, which were still around, at a time where Judah faced a lot of enormous pressure from the outside and pressure from the inside. The pressure from the outside was political. They are a very small country. Please understand, about the size of Harris County, okay, for the entire country. And they're, they're isolated in the world. They've got Egypt at one end, at the southern end, which is a powerhouse, but they've got Assyria up in the north and the east who are looking to expand their borders. And so that's a time of immense international pressure It's a time where everyone worries about their safety. They didn't have early defense warning systems. They didn't even have the night lights that we have. Safety was a very real concern for everybody. But in addition to that international pressure, there was a lot of pressure within the country itself. It was economic pressure. The rich were getting richer. But the poor were getting poorer. There was a lot of people who were really struggling just to try and have enough food to eat. And in the midst of all of this comes Isaiah ben Amos, ben being the Hebrew word for son. And Isaiah, the son of Amos, has a vision in Isaiah chapter 6. And the vision changed his life. And it's the vision that can change our life. I'm not saying go back to your houses and take some vision drugs and lay back and experience the moment. I am saying let's just use our minds to try and understand what it is Isaiah saw and let his words paint our vision and see if they can take us from where we sit right here outside of ourselves into something much bigger. Okay? Let's look at the vision. In Isaiah chapter 6, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, that'd be about 740 B.C., I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Philip, we need new batteries, or I need a new thumb. (laughs) Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet. And with two wings, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, that's Yahweh, the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Now, that's not your normal vision, especially if you predate TV. They didn't have TV, they didn't have movie houses, and they didn't have a lot of artsy people walking around with bizarro paintings. And so this man didn't have a lot of experience for this growing up as a child. Our children saw a vision like that, they'd think it was MTV. (laughs) But Isaiah doesn't have that experience. Isaiah is there, and and in the year that King Uzziah died, he says, I saw the Lord. The Lord is seated on a throne. The Lord is high and exalted. And the train of his robe fills the temple. And there are these six creatures buzzing around. And they've got six or four creatures. They've got the the wings that cover the eyes or face. They've got the wings that cover the feet. They've got the wings that are flying. And these creatures are calling out to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, this is a pretty powerful vision. Let's talk about why. Let's go into it with a little bit of detail. The, uh, um, uh-oh, there's another way to do this, y'all. Got to get my arrow up. Um, In the year that king who died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne high and exalted. Let's start there. There's, there's a concept here in the Hebrew that God is set apart from everything else. If we were in a courtroom, and I were being a lawyer today, in a courtroom, the courtroom's laid out where the judge's bench is higher than everything else in the courtroom. That's because the judge is to be looked up to, and that's because the judge is the supreme ruler within the courtroom, and that's because the judge is the one who makes the ultimate decisions of law and keeps control, okay? In a courtroom, you'll find the jury bench and the jury box a little bit higher than where us lawyers sit. It's not elevated as high as the judge, but it's elevated more than the lawyers and more than the general people in the courtroom because the jurors are elevated in their position. They sit and they judge the facts. They don't take over for the judge, but they do sit and they judge the facts, so they're elevated. It is not uncommon for us in our culture, nor has it been uncommon for thousands of years, for us to put things that are high and honored above other things. Think about even the way our language has developed. We talk about putting people on a pedestal, right? That means not physically placing them on one, but that means holding them up in respect. Think of that word. We hold people up in respect. We think highly of people. We've got all of these words that, that didn't just come out overnight. These are words that, that are, are built into our language because they have been culturally in the mindset of people for history. And the idea of something being high is the idea of something being above or of greater and superior quality, of greater and superior strength and power, of greater and superior vantage point. It's the person who is up high who can see everything better. It's the person who is up high who can make the better decisions because they have the better view and they have the position of power and prestige. Okay. Now this is the vision that Isaiah has of the Lord. Isaiah sees the Lord which contrasts, by the way, with the birth of Messiah in Bethlehem in a stable and a manger. The Bible gives us both views of the Lord. That's one of the massive things, is that this God who's seated up there is willing to leave everything and become flesh. But that's Christmas. We'll save that for another day. Isaiah sees the Lord, and he's seated on a throne, and he is high and exalted. Now, there is a word in the Hebrew, kadosh. Come on, give me some Hebrew. Kadosh. Kadosh. You've just said holy in Hebrew. And the word holy, which is, by the way, what the creatures are saying. Um, the creatures say, um, above him were seraphim, each with six wings. Two wings, they cover their faces. Two, their feet. Two, they're flying. And here's what they're calling out. Holy, holy, holy. And that is the Hebrew word kadosh. And kadosh is used three times there, kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. That's for emphasis. It's not that God is just holy. It's not that God is holy, holy. It's that he's holy, 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 three times. Holy in its root form, when you think of someone being holy or of God being holy, in its root form what it means is set apart. When we talk about us trying to live a holy life, what we mean is a life that's set apart from the normal life we would lead. When we talk about someone who's called to a holy calling, we mean someone who's called to a calling that's set apart from a normal calling. When we talk about God being holy, what we're saying there is God is set apart. He is different. This is is very different than, than what some religions might try and teach us that that teach us that each one of us is God. No. There is a being, biblically we learn there is a being, we call him God, we call him Yahweh, who is set apart from all others, who is high and exalted on a throne. And even these incredible seraphim, these incredible creatures with these incredible features that, that have this flying ability with all these wings and everything else, Even these creatures recognize the Lord as holy and set apart. And it's interesting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. If you look at this vision, the first thing Isaiah sees is Yahweh, the Lord, seated on a throne. And that captures his eyes. It's after he sees Yahweh that his vision expands and he notices the angels around Yahweh and it's after he sees the angels around him that he hears the song. Do you see the three levels, the progression there? It's as if you see first the bullseye and then your vision starts expanding outward a little bit and you start seeing the things around it and then your vision starts expanding a little bit more and you start even hearing what they're saying and these other things come. And the focus of the song is very much the same as Isaiah's focus. If you listen to the song, they're saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Okay? First thing is Yahweh in the song. That's the first focus. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And then it's translated the Lord Almighty. The word Almighty there means of hosts. It's not the word Almighty in the sense that God can do anything, omnipotent. That's not what the Hebrew word means. The Hebrew word means um, like the general of an army. He's the Lord Almighty. He's the Lord of hosts. And the King James translates it, of hosts. And that's a good translation. Because that Hebrew word that we read, Almighty in the New International Version, is meaning uh, of all things. And so the creatures themselves, these phenomenal creatures, are singing first of Yahweh as holy, and then they sing of Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, their vision expands. He's not just holy in himself, but he is the Lord of all other creatures. And then the vision expands even more to the earth. His, the whole earth is filled with God's glory. Now what Isaiah has caught a glimpse of is the most awesome entity that there could ever be, that there is. He has caught a glimpse into a throne room scene of Yahweh Almighty. I don't know where you are in your life, but everybody, at some point or another, has had to have a need for some divine help. Okay? Have you ever thought, hey Lord, help me now? Um, you know, what's the old joke about the atheist who's about to be eaten by the bear? And he uh, says, uh, God, you know, I, I, if you are there, uh, would you please save me from the bear? And God says, what do you mean, if? You know, you've never talked to me before. You don't believe in me. And uh, the man said, well, okay, then uh, uh, why don't you convert the bear? If, if I can't be converted, God, uh, just convert the bear. And so God does. And the bear bows his paws and says, Lord, for this meal I'm thankful. And, uh, you know, everybody from any walk or station in life finds the need for some help, you know. Can you imagine actually being in the presence of God? Can you imagine truly having the God of all creation, and you are in his throne room, and you are in his presence? Now, I'm not talking about pious Sunday school. I'm talking about you in the middle of your life, in the middle of your crisis or whatever you've got going, if you found yourself in the presence of God Almighty, Well, if you did, I suspect that your reaction would be very much the same as Isaiah's. Isaiah's reaction was, woe to me. The woe, there's the Hebrew word for wailing, just bawling, basically. Oh, right? oh my law!" Oh. You don't want to say, oh, my God, because he might answer. So, <laughs> I mean, you're in there with him, right? So, But that's what it is. That's a wailing crying out. I am in bad trouble. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King Yahweh Almighty. In in true Hebrew poetry, we see, um, we've talked a lot about Hebrew poetry and how it's parallel. This is a beautiful passage in the Hebrew to read from a poetic perspective, because just as the vision of God starts out with the, each focus getting bigger and bigger, you, first you focus on God, and then you see the surroundings of God, and then you see the words, and you hear about the whole earth filled with His glory, you've got the same focus change going on here with Isaiah, but it's the exact opposite. Isaiah then looks down at him after seeing God, and he starts out with, Oh man, I'm in trouble, I'm horrible. And then he gets a little bit bigger. And so are the people around me. And then he gets a little bit bigger. And he says, you know, I'm, I'm unclean, I live among unclean people, and I've now seen this thing beyond me, and I'm in bad trouble. I promise you, that is the reaction. You go before God. You get in the presence of God. And there's not a human being alive who will be standing We can be real high and mighty about where we are in our station in life. And we can get really proud about the things that we have or the things that we do. And we can feel really good and puffed up about it. But if we're doing that, we're not in the presence of God. Because you do not get in the presence of God and be puffed up about who you are and what you have done. Nor do I if we're in the presence of God Almighty there is no puffing. Jesus will tell the parable 770 years later after this of the the man who who is going down the street and he sees some poor fella over there and the poor fella is smoting his chest saying God have mercy on me a sinner. And the rich Pharisees walking down the street saying, Whew, I'm glad I'm not like that trash over there, that sinner. I'm holy and righteous before God, I'm like that loser. Yeah. Jesus' response is, do you know which man goes home to his house right with God? It's the loser sinner who is smoting his chest saying, God have mercy on me please. And what we have to be careful of when we read parables like that, when we sit through a class like this, is we become the the Pharisee, the righteous guy. Do you know how we do that? Some of us hide it. Some of us become the Pharisee by saying, whew, I'm glad I'm not that Pharisee. (laughs) Hey, man, I'm glad I'm not. I'm not stuck on myself thinking I'm good. I'm much more like the penitent guy. I'm the holy one, not like that sinner. That Pharisee was a loser. You see the hypocrisy there? You know, we fell in the trap, didn't we? Uh huh. You don't get before the presence of God proud of who you are. You get into the presence of God appreciative of the fact that He made you and that He loves you. But when you come before God, you become acutely aware of just how grungy and dirty you really are. Isaiah will say later in his book that the best human deed there is it's like a polluted garment before God. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, even the best human deed is tainted with at least a little bit of selfishness. And do we not understand like a drop of ink and a gallon of milk? It taints everything it comes into contact with. Any of us who believe that we are righteous before God because of who we are need to get a bigger vision of God. But the vision doesn't end there. If we see the vision, the reaction uh, we walk through, first he focuses on himself, then he focuses on others, and finally he focuses on God. And what Isaiah is experiencing, I want to pause here for a minute and use these three words because these are words that are in my vocabulary. These are register in my brain. I keep them there um, uh, because they help me in life. Isaiah is experiencing true moral Guilt. Hold those words in your brain. Let's talk about... I mean, there are three very carefully chosen words. True, moral, guilt. Isaiah's not just feeling kind of down. Isaiah's not just feeling kind of low. This is not a mood swing that needs some Prozac. This is not um, just, oh, crud, I wish I had been a little nicer to my wife before I left home. That's not what this is. This is not a a guilty feeling that's wrongly placed. This is true moral guilt. This is guilt that's rightly felt because in a moral sense, in a true moral sense, Isaiah fell short. If we understand that God is a real entity and we don't think of God as... um, Just some nebulous idea of some cloud that kind of floats and takes an amoeba-like ability to change shapes and forms. And what God is for me and what God is for you can be anything different. And let's be our own God and let's understand God as we see him. And let's change our image of God. Let's make God something different today than he was yesterday. I mean, it's none of that. If we understand the biblical concept, it's that God is a real entity. He's a real creature, not a created one. But God, as an entity, has a real moral fabric to him. He has a real ethic. He has a real right. He has has what we call life. He has what we consider um, uh, uh, light. He has what we consider truth. He has what we call good. And all of those words have meaning in our vocabulary because of who God is. Good means something to us because to us it means a description of how God would behave and function were He in our place. Right means something to us because it's a reflection of how God would behave. You take God out of the picture and right becomes, I guess, the opinion of whoever's strong enough. And you can't really say Hitler did anything wrong without God in the picture because most of the people were fine with it. But when God enters the picture, morality gets meaning because God himself has morality. And if this is God and God has this morality, that which is not God exists as well. And that's what we would call immoral. That's what we would call unethical. That's what we would call wrong, that's what we would call evil, that's what we would call a lie, that's what we would call darkness, that's what we would call death. You see? Now, we as as people were created to be in in God's image. We were created to be in, in His moral plane. We were created to have the same ethics. We were created to be truthful people. We were created to be loving people. We were created for life. But when mankind opted instead to chart his own course and be his own God, when mankind fell from God, mankind became something that God is not. And even though within us still is that germ that says there's got to be more to life, I've got to be made for more than this. Even though that exists within us, we're still in a condition that is not a godly condition. And you can take people... And By the way, this is the biblical doctrine of being born again, that that God calls us to be born again, because the the creatures that we are by birth is not one that's destined for eternity. Set that aside for a minute, though, and, and, and let me keep on focus. So Isaiah sees God in all of his moral purity... And it doesn't matter. It's for you and me too. We see God in His moral purity. We see Him in His power. And every one of us falls short. And we don't spend the time first pointing the finger at anybody else. Every one of us spends the time saying, first of all, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell. Then we can go to people around us. I dwell among a bunch of people just like me. And I've seen Yahweh Almighty in all of His power. That's the reaction. And look what happens. Then one of the angels, one of the seraphs, flew to me with a coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. When we come into the presence of God in all of his grandeur and in all of his purity and in all of his power and might, when we focus and see ourselves in, in, in a confession and a repentance, say, woe is me because of my uncleanness, the story doesn't end there. One of the angels goes to an altar and he takes a coal from the altar. The coal is what was left after the sacrifice. So he takes from the sacrifice on the altar and he brings and he touches it to Isaiah. And God says, with that sacrifice your sin is atoned for and you are now clean. do we know who the sacrifice or what the sacrifice was that really offers that cleansing? Do we really think that it would be the mere blood of a goat like that's going to do anything for us? The Hebrew word here is that the sin is atoned for. That means that a true moral price is paid for the true moral guilt. See, if we go back to what I said God was, there it is. If we go back to what I said God was, God as a specific being, when mankind sins and mankind becomes not God, we need to see that God cannot simply change to become like us and thus restore fellowship. For us to have fellowship with God, we've got to become like Him again. And some penalty's got to be paid for all of our sin because that's God's consistency. Sin has a consequence. You put your hand in fire, you're going to get burned. God doesn't change. He doesn't take consequence away from sin. He doesn't take death away. Sin has a consequence. So what God says is, in the most incredible, loving way possible, God himself will pay the price for the sin. That's the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. That's why Jesus dies. Jesus dies for the sin of mankind. He pays the penalty that we should have paid. And then what's left is not us being destroyed for our sin, but it's us being touched by the sacrifice of Christ. And that was not Isaiah's doing. Isaiah's doing was to just see God in his glory and to fall on his knees in repentance or on his face and say, woe is me. And it was God himself who provides the sacrifice. And it was God himself who touches, reaches out and touches Isaiah. And so Isaiah um, has his sin and his true moral guilt taken away. It's gone. The price has been paid. The penalty's done. It's over with. It's finished. And um, with that, true moral guilt, true sacrifice, true atonement, we see a commission. This is interesting. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. Isaiah's found his voice now. Isaiah's been real silent through this whole thing, other than saying, woe is me, and just wailing to himself. He has the audacity to speak out to God Almighty and to answer the question of God. Whom shall I send? Who's going to go for us? Here I am, send me. Because that's the way it works. With forgiveness from God, we find our voice, we find our purpose, and we find our direction. When I started out this morning, I said there is a vision here that can change everybody's life in here regardless, old, young, rich, poor, red, blue, green, doesn't matter. Can change your life. You see the Lord, you catch a glimpse. Did you know that's one of the reasons we try to worship every Sunday? It's one of the reasons Dick chooses the songs he sings. He tries to pick songs that bring us into the presence of God you cannot come into the presence of God and walk away unchanged. It can't happen. And when you catch a glimpse, it may be in a worship service, it may be in your quiet time, it may be in a Sunday school class, it may be when you're out looking at the trees. But when you catch a glimpse of the awesome God, it will drive you inside to recognize your own shortcomings. And the proper response is a confession of those. And then look at the hand of God reach out to you in forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And see that and accept that. And from that gets the direction and the purpose. That's why we do the things we do. Life is not without meaning anymore. Life is not just running around on one of those little rat wheels trying to make it go faster. Oh yeah, but today's Monday. I'm really going to make it go fast. Watch this. That's what many of us are doing. Many of us are just on this. Well, what are you doing with your life? Well, I'm really getting this wheel to go fast. Watch. <laughs> yeah, but you're not going anywhere. Yeah, but I'm going real fast. <laughs> yeah, but, but where, where are you headed? Run, uh, fast. <laughs> <laughs> what's your purpose? Shh, I'm trying to go faster. Why? Because. Because why? Because I can. I mean, what, what's the purpose? What's going on? Yeah. Oh, gee, I get to go try another lawsuit next January. What's the purpose? Is there something more to that? There's something more than uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman, more to this life than living and dying, more than just trying to make it through the day, and more than just going to church. Oh, gee, let's go to church. Our kids need to have it as a good example. Oh, gee, let's go to Sunday school. You know, we'll get out in time for lunch. We might learn some Hebrew words. (laughs) I pronounce them with a West Texas accent. They're not too useful for you anyway, you know. Uh, I was so nervous with Joel here last week. I thought, well, I was going to use these Hebrew words, but he'll probably raise his hand and say, "Uh, excuse me, you've mispronounced that. (laughs) Well, that's the way we said it in Lubbock. Uh, (laughs) Excuse me, it may not have been the Jerusalem way, but, you know... um, yeah, there's, there is more to life. That's your direction, that's my direction. That gives us our meaning, that gives us our voice. So Isaiah walks out of there and look at the results in Isaiah's life. I just went through a couple of chapters, and I grabbed a few things that God spoke through Isaiah. God spoke these 700 BC, 700 years before Christ. OK? Look at Isaiah 7:14. Isaiah seven fourteen. Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of God also? Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child, and will give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Imanu, with us, El, God. He's talking to Nathan. He said, Nathan, you know what your name means in Hebrew. He said, gift of God. He's right. Natan is the Hebrew word for gift. El, God, Nathaniel, gift of God. Imanu, God with us. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Isaiah has prophetic visions of the coming Holy One of Israel. Um, it's not just here. If we keep switching, go to Isaiah 9. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. Who's from Galilee? Jesus of Galilee. Well, let's see. Let's read about it. If you keep going down, go down to verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of Yahweh Almighty, that's who Isaiah saw his vision of, Yahweh Almighty. The zeal of Yahweh Almighty will accomplish this. That was not just written so Handel would have some good words for the Messiah when he wrote his orchestral masterpiece. That was not just written so that some people could rewrite history and mold it around that passage with Jesus. Isaiah catches a glimpse of the Messiah over and over and over in his book. I had a friend in high school. I was just working so hard to help this friend understand who Jesus was. And this friend would not listen to me at all. And I read this passage. And my friend's comment was, well, yeah, but those are Christian writers who wrote it. He <laughs> said, hey, time out, man. This is like Isaiah. This was written a few hundred years before Jesus, 700. He said, well, we must, that can't be right. I said, well, they found copies in the Dead Sea Scrolls that were 200 years B.C. I'll give you 200 years B.C. It's still before Christ. And he says, wow, that's kind of interesting. But but, but the, the thrust of it for me, for us today, though, is not geared toward, hey, understand how Isaiah shows the Messiah coming. The thrust I want you to get is understand what happens to your life when you get a vision of God. God's commission to Isaiah was to prophesy to his people. God's commission to you and I might be different. I suspect it is. But his commission is there nonetheless. And the calling starts with you and continues with you getting a glimpse of God. So here's your homework. Number one, point for home, God is real. Now, how is that homework? I want you to chew on it. I want you, after this class, sometime during the day, sometime during the week, to really contemplate the fact that there is a God. (coughs) That He's not some amorphous little changeling that's different to you than He is to me. Um, I was asked on the radio the other day if... uh, (laughs) Actually, he didn't ask it. I was being interviewed and the guy says to me, in the prep for it, he says, now, uh, George Bush said that the God of Islam and the God of Christianity is the same. And I think he's wrong. And so I'm going to ask you about that and let you talk about how wrong he is. And I said, "Do you want to know what I think first? <laughs> he kind of looked at me and said, yeah. I said, i tell you what I think. There is one God. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. There is Shema Yisrael. There is one God. I call him Yahweh. I call him Jehovah. I call him God. I call him Adonai. I call him Hashem. I call him whatever I want to call him. There is one God. Now, the Muslims have this concept that there is a God, Allah. If I could convince them of the truth of the entire Judaic Christian scripture, their word for God is still Allah, That's the Arabic word for God. Now, there's one God. They believe Allah is very different than I understand Allah to be. Okay? But there's only one God. We could go to Norway in the 1000s, and they'd have Odin, and they'd have Thor, and they'd have all of their little pantheon of gods. But there's only one God. You call him what you will, you can divide him up however you want to, but there is one God. And he doesn't change for us, and he doesn't change for the Muslims. He's not the God we understand over here, but once you get into the Middle East, he becomes a different God. And the images that are given of God in the Koran, I think by and large, are inaccurate. But I'm not sitting, and, and and I said so. Ultimately, to the radio guy, I said, "So, I mean, I can see what Bush was saying, I mean, but I can see what you're saying too, and I'll try and make both points. You know, it's 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 something where we need to have understanding." He didn't ask me that question. I don't think he liked my answer. But um, <laughs> we talked about many other cheery things, and uh, <laughs> the, the the point I'm driving home is God is real. And I urge and encourage you to do your homework and to think about Him and to think of who He is. Think about God who reigns in majesty and truth. He reigns whether you acknowledge Him or not. You can ignore Him all you want to. Doesn't change the fact He's there, doesn't change the fact He reigns. Just means you're on your little wheel, just going real, 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 real fast without paying attention to the world and the hand that wants to take you off the wheel and give you purpose in your life. We should behold this God. When we see God, it changes our life. If you're not happy with where you are in your life, spend more time in God's presence. It's that simple. And Louis Meori is, I think, one of the best counselors in the world. And if you've got issues that need counseling, his office is open to you for free. Because this church values what he does that much. That they pay him to do that for you. But I want to tell you something. Whether you see Lewis and get his help or not, you want your life changed? Get in the presence of God. You go see Lewis, you know what he does? He gets you in the presence of God. I've asked Lewis countless times, how many people did you help this week? And bless his heart, he always says, hey let me tell you what God's doing. He's working in people. Because Lewis doesn't see Lewis as the helper, he's the tool. God's doing the work. You want your life changed. You get in the presence of God. You get in the presence of God. You don't walk out the same, ever, period. Accept his atonement and find your purpose in life. Those are your points for home. They're wonderful points from Isaiah. So I'll pray with you in a minute, but close with me here. Find God and seek him out. In music, seek him out in words, seek him out in thought. Find time to focus on God and get your life where you want it to be because you'll get it where he wants it. You'll get his direction. You'll get his strength. Pray with me. Lord, thank you so much for an opportunity to share. Thank you for the vision that you gave Isaiah, that you've recorded it for us or had Isaiah and others secure it for us to read and to be enriched. Lord, it is my prayer that you will touch each one of us here today and give us a glimpse. Even if it's just fleeting, Lord, catch our heart and our eye with who you are. Change us, Lord, to be more like you. Lord, give each of us an understanding of atonement. Help each of us, Lord, accept the sacrifice from Jesus and then live away from the shame and give us purpose. We pray in Jesus. Amen. I forgot to say one thing. I'm sorry, you can leave, but let me say this one thing. There is a difference between guilt and shame. If you have true moral guilt, you go to Jesus, you get forgiven. When you're forgiven, it's gone. And if you let it stay around your neck, that's shame and that's not from God. And that's not right. Thanks. Bye.